Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers, or really anyone who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. You can find out all about the reasoning behind the name and the coffee connection over on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. Today I'm featuring coffee from our Gorongosa. My family gave me two bags of their coffee for my birthday earlier this month, and today I'll be talking about one of their blends, Speak for the Trees. Our Gorongosa are an incredible company that I've wanted to feature on the podcast for a really long time, so I'm super excited to tell you more about them. I'll be talking more about them and who they are at the end of this episode. In today's episode, I talk with Ellen Miles, activist, guerrilla gardener, and founder of the campaign Nature is a Human Right. We talked about this campaign, urban greening, the lack of access to nature, and the importance of community. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak to me today. Um, We'll kind of start it off by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell us kind of about yourself and, I guess, where your connection to nature really started Mm, yes so hi i'm ellen as you said i am from east london and i am an activist um and my connection to nature started really in my childhood holidays which was all generally spent in um essex in this little island just off the coast called oc which has now been kind of privatized and turned into a shooting location for Jude Law films, and before that was um, the site of the rehab that Amy Winehouse went to, which you can see in in that um, biopic. But at the time, it was this place for families to go um, with a bunch of cottages and where kids could really run around and be free and build tree houses and ride bikes because um, there were no cars and there was no danger of anything happening because it was surrounded by the sea. You could only get onto it for about an hour a day when the tide was completely out. So um, we'd, we'd head over there all the time. So you, despite kind of being from London, um, I had a bit of a dual childhood in that sense. And I got to see the sharp contrast in nature access, I suppose, between the countryside and cities. Although Hackney is the greenest borough, you know, um, in London and London's a very green city, but nevertheless, um, it's still a very stark difference, um, which is something that kind of went to the back of my mind for a number of years. So, you know, I went and studied philosophy at uni and um, did an art foundation and then went on into kind of campaign strategy um, with all of that kind of dormant for a while. And then um, in the last year, it really came back full force, I think, provoked in part um by the kind of coronavirus lockdowns and those measures and it yeah jolted that childhood memory i suppose i've been talking to someone last night about this it's um each person i've had on here has had such a different almost i could call them an origin story really Mm. um but it's always always been linked to a childhood love of nature um and that's been i think a shared theme among almost every person I've ever spoken to who's involved in the natural world in some way. 
Yes, um, well, um, they, you know, it's been shown, hasn't it, that a childhood connection to nature um, has been linked to later in life um, care for the environment and environmental action. So, I'm, you know, it's not surprising really that the people who are fighting for the environment are the people who feel a love for it, a connection to it. I think if you've never had the privilege of that connection and had that relationship, why would you care? as much or you know to to the, in the same way at least mm, yeah yeah no there's been some really interesting studies done and I definitely would agree with um with them on that but what what um I know you for and the reason that I have uh, been following you on social media for quite a while is the campaign you started the nature is a human right campaign yeah. um I think we can all agree that nature should be a human right but kind of what's what's it all about what what's the campaign calling for so the campaign is calling to make access to green space be a recognized human right and to have it treated as a human right and i think that you know what we've seen this year is that it is not treated as a human right because um the disparities in access to nature which have been around for you know decades and hundreds of years have been really highlighted. And when they started closing the parks, for instance, in London, they were closing them in, you know, the most deprived areas in the city. So they were closing, you know, first off Victoria Park, which is between Hackney and Tower Hamlets, which are um, the third and first most impoverished boroughs in the city, respectively. Both of them, over a third of residents are in poverty. Um, the other one famously was Brockwell Park, which is in Brixton, which has been called the heart of Black Britain. So again, looking at kind of communities of colour, which are another marginalised group in our society who are um, statistically already less likely to have a garden or access to green space. Um, and these groups, the marginalised groups, the, the groups that don't have the privilege of, you know, wealthier, whiter communities, um, those are the groups that can benefit most from access to nature because there's there's already likely to be underlying health gaps there because of other myriad injustices. So they're the groups that need nature the most that could do with having a greater volume of high quality green space um, to compensate for for all that other crap. <laughs> um, and yet we're seeing the opposite really, the, the kind of the current distribution of green space is actually widening those pre-existing gaps and is actually um yeah far from building equity it's it's uh, we're seeing that nature is being placed and prioritized in places um that are already kind of densely densely privileged um so what nature as a human right is calling for is um more prioritization of green space in areas where it's most valuable where you know the communities um are marginalized where it is kind of lower income communities and communities of color that society is letting down time and time again um and this is one way to redress that um so it means more funding for green spaces that already exist it means creating pockets of greenery where there aren't any um, and it means protecting the green spaces that we have for future generations as well. And I've talked a lot about, um, you know, the privilege gap, but it's this is for everyone as well. It's not about taking it away from 
those that already have it. We want to retain the greenery that we have and it's important that everyone has it. And you know, this is what it's about. It's about making nature a right for all. Um, not just a privilege for some people, but you know, including those people too, everyone should have access to nature um, always. And it's about making nature something that's on your doorstep rather than something you have to kind of go and make a make a real um trip to go and see i think you know some people say well like oh everyone has access to nature you can just hop on the bus and go to so and so but in order to receive the health benefits the physical and the mental health benefits and the social benefits of having nature around you of which there are many um which are really life-changing uh, you, you need to have greenery on your doorstep. So it's about bringing, bringing that greenery to everyone's doorstep, um, probably more so than we've seen anywhere in the world so far in our cities. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's a thing that everyone should be getting behind, definitely. I know in the last, um, just in the last sort of few years, it's the work that people like you have done and, um, and the, the stuff that has been... Uh, that I've read about and researched has been sort of eye-opening in terms of the uh, inequalities and in access to nature, the the stark sort of disparity um, around access to green space in our in our communities. And I know exactly what you what you mean about um, Hackney being a, a green greener borough because I've I've spent a lot of my mm. childhood in um, in Hackney with with families and, and close family friends, but. Um, again however green a place is it is always going to come back to that thing about having that on your doorstep and um you know when when one in one in five families or, or two in five families in uh sorry not families children uh in bipoc uh black indigenous people of color communities mm. don't have a garden mm. that's that's not going to happen they don't have you know the people who live on the 14th floor of a tower block um, they they need green space still in their lives, and so kind of running with this theme of um, getting green into our towns and cities. Something you've been heavy on throughout your campaign is urban greening and sort of green cities yes. and uh, looking at all sorts of how you can uh, marry nature and uh, building construction in, mm. in, a, in a sustainable way. Um, yeah. for, for my listeners, a lot of them will, but for those who don't know what urban greening is, can you talk about it and, and why it's so important? Yeah. yeah, so I would define urban greening as, well, in a broad sense, it's just increasing the volume of um, foliage and green plant life in cities. So that's everything from green infrastructure, so big parks and eco-corridors, but down to the smallest thing, so planting um, in a street tree pit. Um, and what I tend to mean by urban greening is the action that people can take. So I, I tend to mean community-led greening action, which is finding bare and unloved, neglected patches of urban land and transforming them into vibrant pockets of plant life. Um, with your own hands and that's what gets me really excited um, and that's what I'm kind of focusing on at the moment because it's hard for councils to um, often kind of make a big new green space because there's pressure on them to have something that's easy to maintain you know their resources are stretched their budgets are stretched 
it's hard to plant a park down in the middle of a densely populated area when we already have a housing crisis and we need more affordable housing. So that's all understandable and um, lots of great work is being done on that. And Sadiq Khan's been a good champion of, you know, street trees and um, the national park, the London National Park City campaign from um, Dan Raven Ellison has been fantastic in um, increasing the greenery of London through, you know, wider, um, more top-down initiatives. But I think it's important to engage communities in that too, and for the neighbourhoods that communities live in to be shaped for and by those communities. So I would like to see more urban greening being done from the ground up and that's something that I'm trying to work on a lot at the moment and to build out resources um, to support that. Mm, yeah, I think I've seen a, I've seen a huge amount of stuff um, on your platform about kind of that and also kind of guerrilla gardening, almost guerrilla greening. Yeah. That, that idea of uh, community-led action to, to get um, wild, to rewild urban mm-hmm. spaces. And that's so important, but I think on... Um, one of the things that really struck me when reading through uh, the work you've done on this is the barriers that you've come across to people mm. kind of getting involved and people, um, yeah, just that there's not really a motivation there to just get out and, and do this urban greening, guerrilla gardening. Um, what are some of the barriers that you've come across in getting people active in this and how, how do you think we can overcome them? Well, I'd say the motivation is there. I think there's I think there's actually a huge untapped um, interest in urban greening. I just think it's slightly dormant in people now because there's a perception that it's um, hard. I think people feel quite overwhelmed by it um, because there doesn't really seem to be a one-stop shop at the minute for all the information you need in one place to answer all your questions. Um, you know, there's lots of fragmented information out there the green scene, uh, greening scene, I should say, community-led greening work, tends to be hyper-local. Um, it tends to be focused on, for instance, a postcode um, like Grow N22 or the, the E5 Gardener, um, rather than on a wider scale. So it can be hard for people to kind of see the bigger picture. So that's definitely one issue, the lack of um, clarity and, I guess, visibility. Um, which is something I'm trying to address by having this kind of, um, trying to build this kind of hub for resources, for information in one place to make it clear and straightforward. One other barrier is that people just aren't aware that this is a possibility. People don't think that taking action into their own hands is something they can do. They think it's doomed to fail. They think the council are gonna come and strim it or pluck them out um, or that, you know, the council has a department for that. That's not for us to do, which I couldn't disagree with more. or they just never thought of it, you know, they've never heard of it, again, coming down to visibility in a slightly in a slightly different way. Um, another big barrier is just the practical gaps, you know, people um, lacking the skills or lacking the knowledge. Although what I'd say is it's more a confidence gap. I feel like people do have the skills and knowledge already, wherever you're at, you can do it. I have got by largely by just googling stuff you know people come to me like i'm the expert and uh you just have to fake it till you make it you can do it um if i can do it and i'm no gardening expert then anyone can and that's what i'm trying to show people that you know i'm not some kind of oracle it's just really easy 
Um, and funnily enough, the biggest barrier, the big one um, that keeps coming back, almost verbatim, word for word every time is, I don't know where to start, you know. Didn't know where to start, not knowing where to start. Um, it seems like people just need this slight leg up um, just to get one foot on the ladder to help them off um, in this journey and to kind of start seeing progress from small step-by-step actions and not having this daunting, overwhelming vision of this completed project and not knowing the small steps to chip away um, to get there. Um, oh, and the final, the final barrier um, was that people really want to do this with others and um, just weren't sure how to find like-minded people um, around them to do this with. Um, because it is a team sport, I'd say. I think, you know, it can be done alone. I think one of the beauties of guerrilla gardening is that it can be done completely self-sufficiently, completely independently, if, that, if that's your style. But it's also fun to do it with people, and that also opens up um, the opportunity for skill sharing. You know, if, if one of you is a carpenter, and one of you is a community organizer, and one of you is a horticulturalist, you guys can join forces to take on something really special. And I think um, having the opportunity to connect people to each other is something else that I'm trying to build out with um, a bit of a map of a network. So yeah, I guess to summarize, the barriers are um, the fact that the scene's kind of fragmented, um, people lack the confidence um, in their own skills and knowledge. Um, some people don't know it's a possibility or they don't, um, they haven't heard of it. Um, people just don't know where to start and people want to find others to do it with. Yeah, well, I think that's, um, that's really important to mention because obviously um, your platform is about getting these people involved and um, community action is something that's important generally across, I think, all aspects of society. Um, mm. People coming together, we've seen a huge rise in um, people helping other people and, and sort of the the amazing, brilliant, beautiful sides of humankind within mm. the lockdowns, within the last, um, however long it's been, I've lost track of the time um, this year, as, as I'm sure many people have. I, I want to move for a minute kind of beyond the urban space, away from, obviously, to a bit of a different community. Mm -hmm. um, there are, as I said, the COVID-19 has exposed a lot of stark inequalities across the UK in access to nature and green space. Um, these do tend to be concentrated yes. in urban areas, but there is a still a, quite a big issue with land justice in the countryside, in, in the rural areas. Mm. In England, we mm. don't have access to, I can't remember the exact number, but it's over 90% of our our land without... I think it's 92. Is it 92? 92%. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, without trespassing, <laughs> without committing a civil offence. Mm. Um, so in short, we don't have the right to roam, which a lot of other countries do. Um, what, what do you, like, talking personally, um, what's your opinion of uh, people in this country kind of owning or monopolising vast amounts of private green space? So... I think it's pretty outrageous, to be honest. I'm not against people having a house with a garden. Everyone should be, you know, entitled to some degree of privacy in that um, extent. I don't, you know, I wouldn't go to the extreme of saying all, prop like all ownership is theft. 
But what I would say is when you own acres and acres and acres and acres of land that are then shut off from 99.99% um, of the public to access, um, it's just scandalous. I, I am shocked that we live in a modern day society where that's possible. And it is unfortunate that that's the way it is. And, you know, with not only is it a civil offence, but that I don't know where they're at with the motion to make it a criminal offence, but um, to criminalise being able to roam 92% of um, the land of the country you were born into or that you've migrated to or that you're from, you know, the, the land that, well, anyone should be able to access to, it doesn't matter where you're from, really. Um, and it's 97% of the waterways, I think. It's, yeah, it's just an outrage. Um, yeah, I, I think it's something we need to address. And it's actually something I've um, been speaking to Nick Hayes about, who's one of the, um, with the um, guys Shrubsall, who are the, who are the two um, Right to Roam kind of champions, along with um, George Monbiot, who have been um, talking about this for a long time. And um, Nick released a book called The Book of Trespass, which kind of chronicles the history of um, that kind of privatization and the, um, theft of common land and how we're how we're at where we're at now and he basically um just goes on a bunch of trespasses um and they're beautiful it's beautifully illustrated he's a he's an illustrator um and yeah would recommend is what i'm saying <laughs> yeah but yeah in response to your initial question it's obviously it's awful it's not it's inexcusable yeah i think um i think i definitely agree with you on that it's uh I, I know people who who own a lot of land um not closely mm. uh not well enough to have this debate with them um mm. but it is it's always been something that i've been baffled at um especially with sort of huge uh, obviously there's there's value in the work that a lot of big charities and big land owning groups do uh in some way but there is also always going to be that thing about there's you know a, a densely populated areas and a housing crisis and there's certain people hoarding this uh this beautiful green space yeah it's incredibly yeah. well managed green space no and i think i think your point about you know um charities and trusts and if if it is for the purposes of conservation that is one thing but when it is just you know uh, my family owned an estate in wherever and there's you know all these grounds that we won't let people walk on it's just it's just selfish mm -hmm. you know um it's ridiculous and if if you do have to if you do feel the kind of ancestral you know need to retain the land at least tell people they can walk on it <laughs> yeah yeah that's kind of the least you can do yeah I'll, I'll definitely uh plug those people you mentioned down below i've, I've been eyeing up uh, Nick Hayes's book for a while. It's mm. on my Christmas list, so nice. Fingers crossed this year. Um, but yeah, uh, I might. Um, I might. Uh, I, been, I was. He said that we'll do 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 it as the next giveaway for the Nature as a Human Right Book Club. The last one was um, Lucy Jones's book, Losing Eden, oh, yeah. and I think we're going to do it next. So you could win it, George. It's, uh, <laughs> I will definitely keep my eyes out for that. Definitely. Um, I mean, they, those are amazing people to be talking to and working with, and I think that leads us nicely onto. The, the next question, which is a lot of work you do is around collaboration and networking and community. Mm. Uh, I can see some absolutely amazing people you have as ambassadors, including uh, my super friend, talented 
Paul Tolmeyer, the amazing Poppy Okocha, uh, and of course a previous guest of mine, Isaias Hernandez, who I was lucky enough to Mm. have a lovely chat with in season one. Why is having ambassadors and building a network of like-minded, kind of passionate young people so important, both for this campaign, but also why is just pushing that that interconnectedness of humans and nature so important? So having ambassadors is important for me because, um, well, of a number of reasons. Firstly, um, I'm keen to not centre myself too much on this and I feel like it could just be me banging this drum. Um, But as someone who is, you know, this is a podcast, you can't see me, I'm white. Um, I'm also, you know, I've come from a middle-class family, all of these things where it doesn't seem to be right for me necessarily to be saying some of these things. I think that's really important that I have um, as many people from as many different um, backgrounds and perspectives um, behind this as I can. I think additionally, um, obviously people like Isaias, people like Tomeo who have... um, a huge respect in in the environmental field and have been educating people on this tirelessly um, for some time and continue to inspire um, people um, around the world. I think there's no better way to help spread this message than through people who have that kind of real authentic connection um, to the cause and um, have a captive audience who know that these people know exactly what they're talking about um and believe in something that is important and i think that um you know it's great that um so many people have have come forward and said you know that they that they'd love to get behind the campaign and it's a great way of um getting the message as far and wide as possible um and i'm always keen to um learn from them as well and share things in different ways so isaiah has done uh, has done some posts on you know eco education and um you know, Poppy, for instance, um, Poppy Okocha is, is an absolutely expert gardener and horticulturalist, so she's been fantastic on all the urban greening stuff. So um, there's just no way that without all of these amazing um, people, I'd be able to cover the range of information um, that I could bring to people just alone, otherwise. Um, so it's the same as the kind of, yeah, like you said, the community network idea. Um, it allows you to bring together disparate skills um, rather than uh, trying to run off uh, your own steam and you've got to accept, you know, I've got to accept my own limitations. Um, Plus it's just fun. They're great people and I love them and I love chatting to them all the time and I love seeing what they're up to and I love being their cheerleader equally back and it's just kind of a nice excuse to um, um, rub heads with some really inspiring and awesome people um so that's a big um bonus i suppose (laughs) um i forgot the second half of your question i was kind of just talking about um why interconnectedness of of humans and nature is is so important because obviously a lot of your work revolves around working with other people to promote these um your campaign and and your educational content um, mm. So why should humans be so connected to nature? Oh God, um, I could talk about this for about five hours. Sorry, it's a, <laughs> bit, a bit of a loaded question, isn't it? Um, really? Um, well, I'm, it's just completely fundamental to our well-being in so many ways that it's actually ridiculous. You know, we've 
it almost sounds like a myth, like a kind of fairy tale, how much of a panacea um, nature is. It honestly is the, the golden miracle cure for everything. It, for our mental health, every aspect of our physical health, it can improve. So hospital patients feel less pain and recover faster when they can see nature um, from their beds. Time in nature has been shown to, you know, instantly lift anyone's mood and reduce your stress, but it's also extremely potent as an antidepressant. And soil produces these antidepressant microbes, and um, more foliage has been translated to a direct um, reduction in in antidepressant prescriptions in areas. There's all of these. um, I could, I could, I can catch myself just like starting to list studies now I wish I won't do for too long but um so for our mind for our bodies for um society as well for our communities it's uh, really key so another often overlooked benefit of nature is that it really brings people together and it's um it's beneficial effects on our mental health translates to stronger relationships between people and also to redu- reduction in um, any aggressive behavior behavior crime violence, all of those things. Um, so basically, it just makes the world a happier, healthier, more connected, more loving, more compassionate, more eco-friendly place. Um, it's it's honestly incredible what um, having some trees outside your house can do. <laughs> um, and it just connects us back to, to who we are. And given that we evolved over, you know, hundreds of, like, well, 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 how many generations was it? Tens of thousands of generations. Um, in complete um, immersion in nature, it's not surprising that we have evolved to need it. And, you know, when you think about taking an animal in an experiment out of its natural habitat, you're going to expect to see um, negative impacts and that's exactly what we are now we're we're animals out of our natural habitats and we're surprised that um you know there's a huge increase in mental health issues and um rising rates of um you know type 2 diabetes and asthma and a number of other things that come from um not having enough clean air and um nature and plant life uh as we should I think that's a really great answer because obviously it was a very loaded question. You could, as you said, you could have, you could have talked to hours. I, I'll, um, I stop myself. <laughs> it's um, it's easy to do. I'd like to go in on a whole other episode at some stage on this because a lot of the work that I've been looking at over the past couple of years, and especially the work that I've been putting out or, or attempting to do my best to to share on my Instagram and on my social media, is is about the nature and mental health connection I think that is such an important thing that um a lot of people in this country don't really um know about that much it's definitely growing though there's the the, uh, the amount of people who are aware of the benefits uh, are definitely rising in number and mm-hmm. I think what you said about community and, and working with these people is really important um I actually saw a, a post uh, last night on it's quite funny how during lockdown a, a huge amount of our connections have been formed online and a huge amount of our um, yeah. kind of community have been has been built online mm-hmm. as well um, but in a in a good way in a you know it's been used yeah. for for good I was 
uh, reading a post last night by Michaela Loach, absolutely amazing okay, yeah, human lovely. being, um, who said that about sharing, the, the power of sharing on social media, whatever you're following, however big your audience is, you know, one share could be um, the start of something amazing and, and bring about an incredible change or campaign. And I think that, that I really resonate with that a lot mm. uh, because I... I got a private Instagram account, maybe 2018, I think December 2018. Mm. It's the first time I got social media, actually. And um, I found out about Michaela's account through someone's share on a story. Oh, really? And that led me to follow Joe Becker, Treason Peace, um, you know, yeah. t- and, then, and then so many other people, including Tori Choi, who I've had on the podcast, who yes. I've now worked on. Another amazing human. Yeah. I admired from afar. <laughs> and I, I've had the absolute privilege of working with Tori twice on two different campaigns and forming an absolutely amazing network of people who I know and speak to uh, mm. regularly across the globe um, through different projects. And those things only happened because I decided to get social media create a public account last year and oh. um, connect with people online through through a story share. Yeah. So I think the power of th- these platforms for good, especially something like yours who shares educational content created by a collective of amazing, amazing people, yeah. knowledgeable people, is, uh, is so important, especially in this day and age where it's becoming increasingly hard to meet real life people um yeah in face to face definitely and I'm you know I think um I'm definitely feeling the impact of that now and um you know for for instance the the ambassadors coming back to those awesome people um I was connected to all of them just through Instagram um just through like DMing (laughs) so Mm. it just it just goes to show what really is possible that would never have been a possible before and the, the fact that we can also kind of um hold people to account on Twitter or whatever it is. I'm terrible at Twitter, but the fact that that is a possibility and that we're starting to see more of a shift now in, um, not, not completely, but in some, you know, corporate responsibility, um, because we do have this people power now and that it is, we're seeing a more democratic um, way of interacting with corporations whereby we're not just being told from the top down how things are, but we're able to kind of give it to them back as well. So I think that's another good thing that's come out of social media. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, without that community spirit and without connection like that, um, also, unfortunately, it is rather nasty to say, but without the pandemic, this mm. podcast wouldn't exist. I wouldn't have had the time to do this. Um, without without the pandemic, nature as a human right probably wouldn't exist, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, we, I think, I think I needed that pressure, um, to, that kind of, this has really got too bad now, you know, I think I needed the parks to close. Mm. Um, to really feel the outrage that set the fire in my belly to, to you know, do something. Um, and I think that's the case for lots of lots of positive change that we'll see out of this year. It's that whole, you know, analogy with the coal and the diamond and the pressure. Yeah. Um, which apparently isn't true. That's not how you make diamonds. But um, the analogy stands. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... Um... It is obviously quite unusual for two people who absolutely love nature and being outside and in green space to be sitting here discussing the enormous benefits of 
sitting in front of a laptop talking to someone you have <laughs> never met in real life. Um, but I think at the same time, it is important to recognise that. But kind of, I mean, we've kind of got to the, the end of what I wanted to talk to you about, really. I think just the last thing to say is I'd like to do a little quick fire round, if that's OK. It's something that yeah, I do with all my guests. Um, just four quick questions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Okay. They might be a little hard to answer, <laughs> but um, try and answer them as quickly as you can, if possible. Oh, okay. So, first off, what's your favourite animal? Pine marten. That was actually one of the quickest responses we've ever had. Um, (laughs) Where is a place you like to go and connect with nature? Somewhere you feel really uh, at home outdoors? Um, Burnham on Crouch in Essex. Um, We can't go to Oceania anymore, but there's this little spot um, down by the river off um, just in rural Essex, which is like a bit of me. Do you have a conservation hero? Ooh, ah, that is such a hard question. I, so this is touch and go whether it's conservation, but Octavia Hill, so she was a kind of social reformer in Victorian London and she was big into improving um, living conditions basically um, for, for, pe- for, you know, normal people, common people. And um, she was big in improving access to nature actually. And so she helped to kind of make London the green space that it is. And last off, how do you take your coffee? Black. That's good. It's Just a... straight up. I'm simple. Yeah, nothing nice. fancy for me. I struggle to do that unless I actually have to stay awake, unless I need the caffeine. Really? Um, What's yeah. your order? Generally just an Americano. Um, okay. Although I've met this, a friend of mine recently who may have converted me to cappuccinos and in Ooh. doing so possibly bankrupted me because this what's your milk of choice uh usually oat milk yeah yeah oat milk's a solid it's choice cool. it's a classic it's um, a bit too oaty for me i find that it just makes everything taste like porridge it's, n- it's nice in coffee weird yeah tea. That's no I... I think down i'm at university in cornwall um so it's quite a nice place because we've got uh minor figures relatively nearby oh, so nice. a lot of the cafes stock minor figures which is a really good brand mm. um so i think kind of we can wrap it up there but before we finish I just want to ask where can people find you kind of what are your main social media handles and how can they get involved with your projects um so the main social media handle um that the activity happens on is instagram so you can go to at nature is a human right um if you go to our website which is nature is a human right dot earth you'll be able to find a ton more information, a bunch of resources as well, including the free guide to getting started in urban greening, which was just released, um, which is about 20 pages long. It has a kind of step-by-step list. Um, it's just basically breaking down those barriers that we discussed earlier and making it super simple, easy and fun. Um, and also the community network, which is um, in beta mode at the minute. So it's super scrappy, but please sign up. Um, the more people that sign up, the better we can make it. Um, and yeah, that's it. Um, also, the uh, petition to the United Nations is um, still going. I've slightly taken my foot off the pedal on that one, but you can find that at change.org forward slash nature is a human right. Fab. Uh, well, thank you so much again for taking your time in the evening to come and come and do this. And thank I'm really looking me. forward to seeing what you come up with next. Thanks, likewise. Thanks again to Ellen for taking the time to speak to me today. 
All the links to her social media will be in the description down below, as always. So I said that at the beginning, we're featuring coffee from our Gorongosa. This is an incredible coffee that's grown in the heart of the Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, and the company directly supports conservation, reforesting and education projects in the local area. All profits from this particular blend of coffee that I'm drinking now supports rainforest reforestation in Gorongosa National Park. All the details of this coffee will be over on our Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists and in the description down below. And I will be doing a post all about our Gorongosa coffee on my Instagram at some point in the new year. Uh, it's not sponsored or affiliated in any way. I just really like them, their coffee, the work they do and what they stand for. Now I won't talk about this too much, but during my break after season one, I started a Kofi page. This is kind of a place for me to just share blog posts, videos, coffee company profiles and more. It's also a way for you to support me if you feel like you've learnt anything of value from my podcast. I'm a student, I don't earn any money from this podcast. I'm kind of just using this as an opportunity to raise some money uh, over Christmas and beyond to support small coffee growing communities and independent coffee companies. If you'd like to help me help these people in groups, please consider supporting me. You can find me on Kofi through the link in my Instagram bio and the description. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman jones and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast. Mm-hmm.